You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah Gaskins. And today we are joined by Eric King. Eric has nearly a 20-year career in juvenile justice. He is an entrepreneur, and he's doing a lot of really cool stuff in the DMV related to housing and youth. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show and giving me a voice. Uh, I work throughout the community, and uh, I find it very valuable to have these type of conversations that are honest and provides transparency within our community. Well, we are just really excited to dive into this conversation with you. Um, one of the ways we like to start our show is just by getting to know who we're talking to. We want to hear about your story, how you got to where you are, and what are the issues you are passionate about? So I guess I'll start my story with my brother and I, I have a twin brother, Isaac King, and we were born in San Jose, California and had the nuclear family and we're doing well. And then our parents got divorced when we were four years old. And so my mom moved across the country to Stanton, Virginia, and it changed my life in a, in a positive and a negative Where way. Where is Stanton, and Virginia? Stanton, Virginia is in southwestern Virginia okay. in the Shenandoah Valley. Okay. So it's a rural rural area, and uh, it created a gap between my myself and my father, and and my brother and I grew up in a single parent family, um, and so that was something for us that was different. You know, you you know you have a mother and father, you know you have fun and love and um, that connection, and without that there's something that's missing. And so throughout my you know, youth, we always had support and protective factors in Stanton, Virginia. We had the church, we had athletics, but that, that was something that was always missing was having a father. And so I always leaned on my friend's fathers and other male figures within the community, but was able to be successful. I had a couple offers to go to different colleges looked at UVA and Virginia Tech and decided to start out at Virginia Tech. Started in the engineering program, but without the support and focus on social and having fun, <laughs> I, I quickly transitioned to sociology. Oh, I did the same thing. I kept failing, and sociology was my final major. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> it, really it really resonated with me, and you know, as a person of color, you always thinking of, I have to win, I have to survive, you know, mm -hmm. you, you know, survival of the fittest. And so what can I do that resonates with me that can move me forward and keep me in college? And so I continued to have fun in college, but slowly as I matured throughout the years, became more and more focused on my academics. And as I was graduating, had to make a decision whether I was going to go into politics or focus on juvenile justice. And I decided to go down the track of juvenile justice. So I graduated in 2000 and moved to Fair, well, I moved to Washington, D.C., but 
got my first job at Fairfax County Juvenile Detention Center. And that's where I started my, my career. Worked, worked there for five years. Really worked hard to try to find ways to get into probation because I knew that that was an avenue that I could have a larger impact on the youth that we were working with. Didn't get the opportunities I was looking for while working in Fairfax. You know, I did volunteer work and tried to pad my resume and gain experience, but it just didn't work out. And so after six years in Fairfax, I took a look at Arlington County. And so I was able to secure a probation officer position in Arlington County and worked hard uh, to learn how different systems come together. So social service system, the court system, and the school system, how do they come together to support youth and families? And it's an interesting job being a probation officer because you get a look into someone's life and it's a 360. You get the perspective from the school, the perspective from the parent, the kid's perspective, um, and other stakeholders in the community. And so it just gave me a unique look into people's lives. And after about three years of doing that, my brother and I took a look at there's some gaps in the services that are being provided, especially in communities of color. And we looked at fatherhood and that was something that resonated with me because I always longed for having my father in my life and we really didn't connect. We, I mean, we would get together, but there was no emotional connection and he wasn't mature enough to, um, move our relationship along. And so I had, there was something that was eating at me and I was able to channel that energy into creating the capital youth empowerment program and creating a fatherhood program so that we could teach fathers how to be better fathers, how to be nurturing, how to be responsible and how to be more engaged with their children. We started that in the city of Alexandria with Mayor Yule and the court system. We bootstrapped it pulled together a few friends of ours uh, to be on the board. And, you know, from that, it was history. We grew the program, worked with... They're doing uh, white Chapman. parties, white parties in the Hamptons. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all fancy, fancy. <laughs> so I guess with your upbringing, I know for me coming out of school, I was very Pollyanna. I thought I was going to change the world and very quickly learned about the systems and the policies and just people's everyday experiences and everyday life that prevented them from great attainment or upward mobility. Do you have like a shell shock moment where you were like, oh, wait, this is real out here. We need to approach things a little bit differently. Well, for me, it was probably personally as I was trying to climb the career ladder and I I was thinking that it was going to be a ladder and it's more like a jungle gym where (laughs) it's not, it's not smooth. It's not just one route. It's many different routes, and that was the shell shock to me that you just don't, it's not a formula of one, two, three, four. It may be for some folks, but not for me. And so yeah. I had to learn how to navigate and to hone, hone my instinct and pair that up with my you know academics and IQ and really hone where my skill sets and my strengths are to match that up with the marketplace. And so... How do you know to do that, though? How I feel like that's something where people that's missing in conversations, whether that's what you guys are doing now with Capital Youth Empowerment. How do you know that? Like, how did you 
have that information to be like, let me navigate the jungle gym this way rather than just go up the quote unquote ladder. I think reading books and just getting older, you start to gain awareness around your environment and what outcomes you're looking to have. The other part is mentorship. You identify certain mentors in the community, whether it be a CEO or someone in leadership, and you really engage with them. And so you start to um, shorten your learning curve when you get the mentorship because they've been through uh, some of the ups and downs and they understand how to navigate and they give you that guiding light. And so mentorship has been critical for me. Uh, there's several mentors in my life that have helped me to get to where I am and then to accelerate and have exponential impact. I'm curious how you've been able to then take your experience and use that to help some of the children that you work with be able to navigate the situations they're in, especially in a situation where, as you mentioned, there are many gaps. So it may not even be a fully put together jungle gym. It may just be a bunch of pieces of a different system. Like first you have to build your jungle gym and then you have to navigate it. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I think everyone's on a journey. We're all on a journey and we're, it's, it's one step at a time. The key is to identify the vision for yourself and then create the plan to get to that vision. And so I think everybody, if we work together, we can expose people to the fact that you have to have vision and you have to see yourself in the place of success. And so that's what I try to invest in others is to have that vision of where they want to end up in 10 years. And most of the the mentors I work with and uh, people I look up to, they always start with, well, what's the finished product look like? What do you want to be? And then let's work backwards to put a plan together. So generally that's the approach I take is you have to have vision uh, and this purpose to that vision and then creating a plan and then executing it one day at a time. Eric, I'd love to dive into the work that you do with CYEP. And how do you know you're making a difference? Like, How do you know the work that you have outlined and the programs that you guys are offering have been successful? Well, we have to look at data and metrics and measure the success. And so each of our programs that we execute are evidence-informed, evidence-based, and there are program measures pre and post that we measure when someone comes into the program and then when they come out of the program so that we can see if we're being successful or not. And that's one thing I love about the conversations that you and I typically have is because you are so focused on the data and seeing that the impact is in the data. We tend to check boxes, hence the name of the show and calling that out and saying, okay, reached out to the black community, reached out to the brown community, invited them to a meeting, impact done, check. What are your thoughts or how do we not do fluffy checkbox implementation to really make an impact in the communities that we serve? I think it's a balance. I think it's a balance of, you know, advocating and having that voice, but then also having programs on the ground that are actually moving the needle. Um, and, and so that's the unique situation that I uh, love to put myself in is having a relationship with stakeholders, having a relationship with leadership within a locality, but then also having a relationship with folks on the ground that are connected to the community. And so 
that puts you in a position where you can move the needle as far as policy and things of that nature, but you can all also have a real impact on the ground because what happens is there's usually a disconnect. And so people create these strategic plans and master plans and all sorts of great plans where they put tons of resources into it, but then on the ground level, it doesn't translate. The resources never connect to the communities, the communities that most need them, or there's some middleman or organization that is receiving the resources that don't understand the community. Total gatekeepers. I think, though, the, you raise a good point about the plans, because I think the plans themselves can also be a gatekeeper and setting up, well, we have to go through this multi-year-long process before we can do anything, or we have to have every piece of data and do 15 different studies before we can do something. And while that's important, and the more information we can have and the more planning we can put towards, I think, the work is critical, at the same time, if we're just stuck in that data paralysis or planning paralysis, we're missing like real opportunities to help people who don't have time to wait. And I mean, sometimes you just have to test. You got to try some new things. Yes, I, I, I'm all for that. I'm I'm all for innovation and agility. And so folks will plan, 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 and then they won't have the right stakeholders creating a plan. And so it doesn't resonate and it doesn't have traction in the community because it's not culturally competent. And so you really have to have the diversity of voices at the table when the planning's being done. And then you also have, a, have to have a connection of resources that are intentional to the communities that you're trying to serve. So right now we're in this space of really focusing on inclusivity and dismantling racism, given what we've experienced and what we've seen with George Floyd. You just were a facilitator for a city of Alexandria town hall. And I'm not going, I'm going to be 100% transparent. I am not a fan of town halls, right? Like how many times can we come together and talk about issues without seeing the change? And so just in case you hear something like Katie Leonard was out there bashing the town hall, I'm going to tell you right now to your face, because I feel like we keep bringing up the same things from five years ago, from 10 years ago, from 20 years ago. And it's like, okay, well, we've been saying this for forever. Where is the real change and where is the real impact? Part of it is what you just said. The right people have not been a part of the conversation. What's your take on that? Because I know you are about action and implementation and moving the needle forward. How do we move from just talking about it and continually raising the issues to actually seeing a difference? Well, and I thank you for bringing that up. And the town hall that we just had was totally grassroots. I was checking in with my staff about, like, their day at last Wednesday. And two of my staff members were basically cursing and furious about the George Floyd situation. And what they told me is, you need to do something. And our organization is authentic. And so we're not going to stand around if something's not right and just watch it go down and so i thought about what can we do and i thought about our community and when i started to see some of the things that were on social media and the probe became overwhelming that's when i said we have to do something that helps us channel this energy because we're sheltered at home we're stuck with you know no daycare we're overwhelmed some of the folks that we engage with 
don't have jobs and haven't paid rent for the past two months, things are building up. And so generally the town halls, it's a different time. It's a different moment. But right now our people are feeling powerless and they're just watching these images. I felt like we had to create a venue where people could at least get their voice out. I thought it was important that folks of color had a voice and in preparation for that program, folks of color were at the table from all walks of life discussing our perspective because what's often lost in these town halls is it's a bunch of community stakeholders that aren't from our community telling us about yeah. our plight. Well, and so this was, about, this was about empowering our community and giving us something to use to channel our anger. But to get to your the second part of your question, it's really looking at systemic racism through, a, I'd say, a 360 view and not just looking at it as police violence. I think sometimes people try to oversimplify the situation, and it's much more complex than that. Right. We look at housing. We look at uh, education. We look at the criminal justice system. Uh, we look at lending and access to capital. You look at every aspect of that and you say, well, how do we strategically tackle it? And, and I think you have to, one, advocate at a certain level, but then look at uh, practical ways to undo these systems. How, I mean, there are strategic ways that people put barriers in the way of Black folks getting housing or accessing uh, buying their own house. There are barriers that they set in place in the criminal justice system and things of that nature. You have to dismantle these systems. They're, they're very intentional ways to hold folks back. And so if they were built, they can be broken down. It just takes a conscious, consistent effort to break these systems down and uh, not to just talk about it, but there, there needs to be a voice to it, but then resources that are intentional about undoing um, the injustices. Eric, I'm wondering if you could maybe share a story or an example to illustrate how these systems interact. And I'm asking that because I think sometimes, you know, people hear us say, well, it's housing, it's transportation, it's jobs, it's healthcare access. And then I feel like people get overwhelmed. They're like, well, it sounds like you're naming everything. There's no <laughs> way people can have a problem with everything. And I, I just wonder if maybe there's an example, either from your own story or some of the youth you've worked with, of like how we cannot just focus on one piece. We really have to be thinking about the intersections and the connectivity across these issues. Well, I think it's it's a deficit. It's, if you were to start a race, and I referenced that being on a journey, you start a race and someone has a head start, then you have to make up ground if you want to catch them or compete on an even level. And so what we're looking for is even equal opportunity to play on an even playing field. Well, how can you do that when generation after generation, you've been set back? One example is about segregated schools. My mother went to segregated schools. So if you go to an inferior school and the next person goes to a, a school that has certain resources, how are you supposed to compete at the same level? And then the next generation has to deal with that deficit too because my mother didn't have the resources and the access. And so you keep going back generation after generation, three or 400 years, 
and you see a huge deficit. And so it's throughout different systems that this deficit and divide. And so education is the easy one because you can easily see that it's a separate school system. And then, I mean, in Northern Virginia, D.C. area, I mean, you look at the district and the school system versus, let's say, in Arlington County, and it's separated by a body of water, and it's night and day. You would think you were in two different worlds when you look at the outcomes of the school system. So I, I just think the schools are a powerful piece of the conversation. And there's a documentary that was not a documentary, it's a YouTube video, but it was a senior project for some kids at Lower Marion High School in outside of Philly. So it's a school that Kobe Bryant went to. They compared their school, which is upper income, to Strawberry Mansion in Philadelphia. And so they're just looking at the resources and almost comparing as best they can apples to apples. And the one kid from Strawberry Mansion is like, y'all got laptops? Like, this is your senior project? Like, you just get to leave school and do this for your senior project? And so the education piece immediately from pre-K sets people back. And it's just, that's one of the most powerful conversations that we need to continually be having and breaking that down to looking at investment and how are schools funded? Well, they're funded through property taxes. So what are the house values in certain communities that are then paying for the resources in these schools? And so systems are flawed in terms of how we fund different schools. Even here in Fairfax County, the schools in South County look way different than the schools in McLean and Langley and their resources that they have in the same county, in the same district. I'll never forget, I used to work for an organization that worked with local elected officials. And we were at an event in one city, and my mom came as my guest. And I was, like, so excited to have her. And I was like, Mom, I'm going to have you meet the mayor. And she didn't say anything, which I was like, oh, that's a little odd. Is she not proud of me? Like, look at this. I'm going to introduce her. But my mom is also very outspoken and she could care less. But when we got there, I was like, you know, mom, this is mayor so-and-so. I'm not going to out out the city. But she just still didn't say anything. And he looked at her and was like, hello, Francine. And she responded. She was like, you know, my school still doesn't have a science teacher. And he responded back to her. He's like, you know, I don't control the schools. The school board makes those decisions. I don't do hiring and firing. And she was like, look, every year these kids get tested on science. We still don't have a science teacher. You're the mayor. I would like you to do something about it. And until you do something, I will keep sending my complaints to you. And I'm just standing there like, I'm going to be fired. I can't have her come with me to anything else. But it was true. She was like, it makes no sense to me if you want to test these children. And then later on, you're going to shut down our school because our test scores aren't as great. Then I need a science teacher or we need to take science um, off as one. And of the they're markers. expected. Those, on. those kids are expected to compete at, a, at the same yeah. level as kids that have a science teacher. It's ridiculous. Well, and, and for me, that's where my passion is right now. Now we have. Amazon HQ2 coming into Northern Virginia. You have the Virginia Tech Innovation Campus. And they want to create a tech hub in Northern Virginia. And so what that's going to create is even more disparities. You look at Silicon Valley, you look at Seattle, and how those communities are impacted by tech firms or large tech firms. And it has a tremendous impact, especially on the underserved community. So my focus has been to collaborate with the major stakeholders, the major players like Virginia Tech, like the school system, and create STEM awareness programs where we're, we're working with our kids of color 
in elementary school, exposing them to robotics, exposing them to coding, and kind of demystifying the, the STEM uh, field so that it's fun, video game-based. We're bringing in folks from uh, professional fields that look like them so that they can kind of envision themselves, but also pipelining them into college prep programs like George Mason's Early Identification Program, Virginia Tech's College Access Program, and providing that infrastructure and support so that they, one, are aware of what these careers are, and two, are not intimidated and can smoothly transition. And then when they're in middle school, they're preparing for what they need to do in high school, taking the right classes, getting financial aid, taking college prep, test prep, and having the right guidance to get into college or wherever they want to go uh, career-wise. And so that's where that guidance and mentorship that their parents may not have or may lack, we can help by making strategic investments in our community. Well, you hit it the nail on the head in terms of talking about the pipeline. There's this guy I follow on Twitter. His name is Rodney Sampson in Atlanta. And I think, Eric, I may have mentioned this to you last time that we talked, but Microsoft is now going into Atlanta. And he did a tweet, and I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, my worst fear has basically come true because I've been telling people for years that a major tech company is going to come to our city and black and brown people are not going to be ready and be prepared and be able to compete for these upper income jobs. And it's true. And so the pipeline is so important and so crucial. And again, going back to being data-driven, being very intentional, having the real conversations, and not just being fluffy, because that's where we're leaving people behind. Yes. I think when you look at the COVID numbers and the folks that are uh, impacted with the low-wage jobs, the low-wage earners, or people of color who's being most impacted by COVID uh, economically, and you look at the minority populations, Black and Latino folks are being laid off at higher rates. The numbers aren't lying. And so we're not in professions where you can find that upper mobility. So we're often capped at our, in Alexandria, the median income for African-American families is 55000 And for a Caucasian family, it's 118000 So it's double. So that tells you right there that folks aren't in um, high demand fields where they can find opportunities for promotion and things of that nature. So that's another thing that we're looking at is workforce development, how to create programs to upskill, reskill the population. You know, COVID came and it, it decimated our community and also the workforce in the restaurant industry. And so we've got to be agile. We know Amazon's coming. We know this is coming down the pipe. Five, 10 year plans need to be put in place so that folks are ready and then our region will be prosperous because. We'll have diversity in innovation, we'll have diversity in tech, and folks can be a part of the ecosystem versus uh, being left on the sidelines. I want to go back to something you said and really drive home about the importance of making sure that we have more diverse voices at the table when these decisions are being made about new workforce development programs, the five to 10 year plans you talked about. And so just wondering if you have any like concrete advice for our listeners on like what are ways or actions they can take to get more diverse voices at the table or to move beyond sort of the traditional checkbox outreach that we're all familiar with? Well, I don't think there's anything mystical or magical that I can say. 
It's all about who you know, not what you know. This system that we're dealing with is uh, pretty consistent. And so if you don't have access to people in power and uh, influence at a certain level, then your voice will be muted. That's just, that's the game. That's the game we're playing. And so understanding that we have to have a connection to the leaders in the community who have a voice, and then we have to lean on them and hold them accountable. That's probably the only way to get into the room because when it comes to, at the end of the day, it's all always uh, economics and about money. And so yeah. access to opportunities, uh, access to business opportunities. And so when it comes to the lucrative business opportunities in tech or in um, the spaces that we're talking about, this innovation, we're often intentionally left out of the room. Like this, it's not an accident that you're not at the decision-making because they're deciding where money's going. They're deciding where capital is It was engineered that way. Dispersed. The system yeah. was engineered it was, that way. It was put together that way. And so we have to understand the rules of the game and then, just like I said, navigate our way to figure out how we force ourselves into the room and get a seat at the table. And with the climate we're in now, you know, hold people accountable in a, in, in a way that, works because holding people accountable and not being inclusive and you know pushing people away and that it's not going to work so you never you're never going to win that way you can embarrass somebody once but you're never going to get invited back to the table so we have to be strategic and skillful on how we get to the table by uh using the folks that we know you have to network you have to grow your network and become a person of influence. I was just telling one of my friends that each of us individually are only as powerful as the net worth of our network. And as I said, I was like, that's profound, Katie. Like I, I may have stolen it from somebody. I don't know, but it's so true. And it, it gives us that access depending on what our net worth is, our collective net worth. So to wrap up, if I had a magic wand or if I had an elected official right here, or a bag of money right here, what is it that you would need and best make the use of to advance this work and to move forward with what you're trying to do? I really think there has to be a work group in our, in our area focused on this inclusive knowledge economy ecosystem and investing in the ecosystem. Because if we create a system that invests where there's weaknesses, then we'll all come up together. But the current system we have, it, um, th there's barriers for certain folks and lack of resources. And so we kind of have to even the playing field. And so if I had um, my wish, I would probably have some sort of working board. Along with it, I would have the corporate community have some, create some sort of innovation fund and what does that fund look like? How much, like, realistically speaking, how much money would that take just to get started? Not saying to solve the problem, but to actually get started and to have an impact. I think the funding would, would definitely have to be in the millions. You, you would want to have yeah. it well-funded so that you have uh, experts in private industry, but then you also would have experts to measure the impact. So we've seen what happened in Silicon Valley and Seattle. This is an opportunity for us to get out in front of 
uh, a huge tech firm, Amazon, that are getting bigger, coming to your city, yeah. you already know the impact is going to be used. So we can measure that. We can research it. We can create a system that can be replicated. And, and so there's so much value there because for economic development, other cities would then come and say, we want to replicate what you guys are doing. And so you create a model. And so we have the opportunity right now to get out in front of it, make an investment, to have a research aspect to it, invest in certain communities that have deficits, and, and also invest in our workforce so that they're upskilling, reskilling, and are preparing so that the tech industry is robust and has the, the workers to uh, maintain the environment that they need uh, to be prosperous. So it, it's everybody wins when there's an ecosystem. Absolutely. The corporate world wins because they're not fighting over talent and trying to outbid each other for yeah. the same worker. There's more workers to go around, but we have to create the education system that fits. It's not just reading, writing, and arithmetic. There's these workforce uh, development skills like um, problem solving, collaboration, communication, um, and also being creative and being innovative. And so those skills have to be uh, nurtured throughout the pipeline and throughout the school system. And so we have to create supports there so that we have a robust economy. So I think that's what I would say is a work group and an innovation fund to help support uh, a lifelong learning infrastructure. Bet. Let's do it. So how can our listeners get connected to your work or get in touch with you? Uh, our website is www.cyep.org. Uh, we can also be found on Facebook. Uh, we have a, a email info at cyep.org. If you want to reach out and contact us, um, please support our organization. We are clearly always... you need millions of dollars right now. Let's do this. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we, we want to connect with uh, the winners. And right now we you know, purposely have a very small board because we want to make a huge impact and we're not about talking. We, yeah. we really want to move the needle and be about action. Perfect. Well, thank you, Eric. We appreciate your time so much and hopefully our listeners will connect with you. Like I said, I could talk about this for hours, but we will stop here. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you giving me a, a platform and a voice and we will continue to fight the good fight. We're on this journey for the long term, one step at a time. We're putting things in place to create that lifelong learning infrastructure. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Okay, Aaliyah, did it feel like Groundhog Day a little bit to you with this episode? I have no idea what that is. You've never seen the movie Groundhog Day? No, when you just said that, I'm like, oh, I'm from Pennsylvania. She must be like, <laughs> Tony Phil. Obviously. Aaliyah, okay, first of all, I'm not clipping this out of the episode because I feel like this is a very important conversation. So Groundhog Day, the movie with Bill Murray, where like he keeps waking up and it's the it's Groundhog Day every single day. Never seen this. You've never, never been in a in a meeting or a conversation where people are like, "Is this? It feels like Groundhog Day." No, I mean I've definitely been <laughs> in places where we have the same conversation over and over, but I'm picturing little groundhogs running around. <laughs> this is my favorite.
Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going, okay. I have an idea. So we'll talk about that later, but groundhog day, it's the same thing over and over. And I said that because the same themes are coming up in all of our podcast episodes about breakdowns in the alignment of our systems and funding and access to capital, access to resources, intentional data gathering and using data to really be of high impact. And so it feels like Groundhog Day. Okay. Well, now that I know what it means, I definitely feel like Groundhog Day. (laughs) But I was thinking a lot about that too, in the sense that you asked Eric about, you know, the data and the indicators we need for meaningful change. And I was like, damn, I've heard Katie ask this question maybe on 10 other episodes. And I started thinking to myself, you know, I don't know that it's a question of do we need more data or do we need different data? I think meaningful change will happen when people actually use the data that's there. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many presentations, how many conversations, how many reports people need to see that these issues are real and they exist and that people are telling the same stories because they're facing these experiences every day. And so rather of like another report or another task force or another study, like we need to actually act and do something like that's when meaningful change happens and I think I'm just getting more and more frustrated that I don't know it seems like we're further away from that than ever before but it goes to what Anaya Petty said on our episode last week like having the qualitative and the quantitative data together to actually use that to tell an informed story and then take the action and even with the data and looking at the qualitative data and Eric talking about having the right stakeholders at the table in the planning process like let's stop creating the plans and developing the plans and then saying, hey, we should loop in some people. Like, let's start listening to people on the front end that are voicing concerns. Use data as a guide to say this is how we can be impactful or intentional. And this is our metric. This is our baseline. But stop, like you said, I I think you're right on target about saying let's stop just collecting data for data's sake and actually start doing something with it. Yep. No, and to your point, when you were talking about the process, I mean, let's let's revisit that too. One of the things that came up on the show was this concept of gatekeepers. And it's not just who are certain people who control the process, but it's also like what are these processes that we're setting up? Do we have to do a multi-year master plan every time we want to make a decision? Like, I think we set up certain things that, you know, we've talked about the check in the box mentality, but we set these things up as a way to control the process. And then in doing so, controlling who's involved, who makes decisions, where's their power, what data we use or don't use, and then when we're actually going to take action. And that whole thing, I'm just, I'm just kind of over it. The takeaway or the, the key ask here is that we're using publicly funded dollars Let's be much more intentional and stop being okay with status quo when it comes to the money that we have. And what we talked about on a previous episode, like when there's not a lot of the money, when we have to be very smart about our spending and where that goes and how to leverage, let's use data to say, where is the real impact? Again, these aren't about vanity metrics. I don't care who came through the door, how many people you serve. Like, let's actually start looking at quality of life metrics and use those across the board. So if you're saying we're using this lens to approach our work, like have a bank of data sets and indicators to say, hey, if you really want to make an impact, these are your highest impact indicators. Here are some mid-tier indicators that will give you a nice gauge of where you are, what you're, you know, where you're trying to go or be a nice 
What is it? Monitoring and evaluation metric. And then be clear and say, these are vanity metrics. Like these are cool. We're taking them. We're doing a census of our programs. That's fine. But let's stop confusing ourselves and let's actually do the work that's going to move the needle and actually track it accordingly. I'd love your perspective on what that looks like in the workforce development space. Because I know for me, I was mind blown by the conversation that you and Eric were having about creating the pipeline for tech jobs and then creating space for folks to not only get the job, but then get additional skills and then get promotions within the job. So like, what are some of the metrics that would actually be meaningful in that space? It's kind of the same thing, looking at your taking it down in different tiers and to say not every, just like I talk about entrepreneurship, not everybody's an entrepreneur. Not everybody is going to be a software developer. Not everybody is going to be a DevOps engineer, right? Like, so let's have these conversations and again, align people to, to the resources that are appropriate for them and then let them decide when they get to the end point, like, hey, I want to explore another career path, but give people the resources they need and be real to say you want to be a veterinary technician because you love dealing with animals and that works for you. Okay, here's what the career path looks like. Here's the earning potential. And we're already identifying that you live in the D.C. metro area, and so your income is probably going to be a little bit lower than the median or the average median income. So here are some other supports for you. Like here are some other housing assistance programs. Here are some education programs to help you offset or subsidize your costs. Like let's start thinking more broadly instead of just being like, yep, go to the resume workshop and good luck to you. Like, what is that? Like, we have to stop doing that and running in circles. It's like the system is set up to keep people in the cycle and to keep people in the churn and on the revolving door to where their hand always has to be out. So if we change the narrative to say, this is where you're going, this is the, the opportunity that you've chosen and you can always change it. You're not like, we're not in a society where you're stuck to that to that that career but here's the path and then we we already know what that bracket what that earning potential looks like for you so we're going to offer the support and the guidance for when you get there as well Mm -hmm. I know you and I have talked about this before but the system is not set up for those who are in the space of you know helping or providing the services to work themselves out of business and so I think because of that we are constantly there are some amazing programs. There's some great services. I don't want to, I want to be clear in that, but I think what ends up happening is if I'm somebody who's in need of one of those services, I can't just go to you and get like a comprehensive wraparound and set of supports. I then need to go to maybe 15 other agencies, fill out multiple forms of paperwork, navigate this sort of this complex process that it's inevitable that I will fall through some crack. I think Eric talked about the the jungle gym. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I need to learn and experience yeah Uh, I've been on a playground in forever but there's like always some hole because of the way we have it set up and I think because of that we then fail to see like the linkages between our systems and we fail to actually create a I don't even want to call it a safety net because I kind of hate that but we create like a platform that Mm -hmm. lifts people up to the next a springboard like it should be a springboard and I'll put my ask in here quickly about the jungle gym, because I do think that mentorship is key and it's what we talked about. And it's really opening people's eyes to what the opportunities are and what it looks like and helping people navigate that system. But outside of that, and looking at what Eric is talking about, about this whole 
timeline or this continuum of workforce development from pre-K through adult education or people even in retirement and what do they have to offer and contribute? Because not everybody's retiring as a millionaire and can afford to live in their nice walk up, right? It has to be a continuum and we have to stop doing things in these one-off aspects and i'm really excited about what he's talking about about this innovation fund of saying i'm bringing all the people together so we can hit people at different points on the continuum and that to me is what we need to be doing in a lot of the other areas is where are the touch points for people and really thinking through what it looks like in each of those areas or each of those like tick marks yeah what i loved about his innovation fund is the commitment to resources from the front end. You know, I've been a part of a number of different like working groups and task force where we are constantly like, you know, having meetings and coming together and putting forth really good plans, but then the plans are created and there isn't the resources there to do something with it. And I felt like Eric's model was like, let's commit the resources, let's commit the resources and know we are committed to doing this. Then let's get people together and talk about what's the best way to steward and use those resources to make an impact. Yeah. Even in just talking about the tech space. So I'm new to tech, right? But the things I've learned, it makes sense for the community development side too. And so when you look at, there's an agile methodology and I'm not going to go into that, but there's a thing called test driven development, right? And so software developers will basically write their tests and that drives a development. So they're, they're already thinking forward to where could things go wrong and they're designing to basically beat that test. And it's almost the same thing when you look at workforce development or any type of social impact stuff. Like, let's design for the failures. Like, let's point out the failures and where they are and design for that and then continually be improving to make sure the failures get smaller and smaller or we're at least operating on different failures over time rather than saying, yep, we're... 15 years in, still dealing with the same problems, still dealing with the same issues, the disparity is still the same, the impact, the magnitude is still the same. Let's be driven to actually like drive toward things that make a difference. Mm -hmm. This reminds me, I took, I participated in a fellowship, I want to say two years ago. And one of the things we were tasked with doing is so you would do you know, you pick an area that you're working on, you map out strategies and you do a factor analysis. So all the things that we're used to doing in planning and public health. But the thing that I thought was different is they would ask you to identify points within your plan where you do something they called plan, do, study, act. And these would be short tests, like small yeah. things that you could do, almost like stress tests on the systems to get a sense as to whether or not where you were going to face bumps and hurdles for the strategies you're proposing, where there might be challenges or resistance where you might meet more resources but i love the idea of like we don't need to have every plan completed and finished all the way before through. you like, evaluate exactly. to say that it work yes and that's where i think the community engagement and the work that we've been trying to do by bringing in other voices is so important don't create the whole thing before you've yep. gone and talked to somebody before you've stress tested that's it. the agile methodology who would have thought that like technology would bring me to this point but in that framework, it's saying let's do small batches because if you write the whole code for a whole program and then you get to the very end and you're like, all right, let's test it and see what happens. You've wasted so much staff time and so much resources in that process. So they break it up and do these small iterations to say we are going to continually test these small batches to make sure we're being very resourceful and respectful of our time and the money that we're spending on this. 
I, I think that. we just well, solved a huge problem, Aaliyah. With technology, Eric should be so proud of us. <laughs> yes. I, I love this recap. I have so many things to go do. I want to go look up the Agile methodology. Yes. I want to look up DevOps because yes. you just threw that word in there yes. like 20 minutes ago. Didn't know what that meant. <laughs> And I can't commit to watching Groundhog Day, the movie, but I am going to go Google it. Yes, please. Ali, yeah. I'm so excited for you. The opportunities are endless right now. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to Checkbox Outreach. Our episodes are available on iTunes, on Spotify, as well as our website. We can also be found on Twitter at Disrupt Outreach.